Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at schoolstatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, episode 199, and I'm your host, Nick Ortigo. On the medal stand, Olympic gold medal swimmer Caleb Dressel can often be seen holding a blue bandana. We'll explain how that ties to educators. And is public school enrollment up or down this fall of 2021? Stay with us. Dismiss is the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each week, we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. This week, a school architect explains how we spent decades designing schools the wrong way, and he offers his solutions to do better going forward. Hello, everybody. Nick Ortigo here. I'm joined by a friend, director of curriculum and instruction, and co-host Christina Pollard. Christina, have you been watching the Olympics? I'm ashamed. I have not. not. You haven't been keeping no. up. I mean, have you been seeing like the headlines, like so and so? Yeah, I've been here? catching a few headlines, but I just haven't. I don't watch a lot of television. I hear you. I normally don't either, but the Olympics, I make an exception for, and uh, I kind of have the Olympic fever. Once you start watching, it kind of pulls you in. Um, have you seen the name Caleb Dressel come across any of your push alerts or anything so far? I have not. Okay, so he is. Um, I think he won five gold medals um so far this awesome yeah right and so i think he's like in this elite club of um he's a swimmer and he's in this elite club of people who have actually won that many medals and won olympics um he's had a really good um showing here he's from florida and Uh um if you are watching or anybody listening is watching um and you may see that he's holding a blue bandana frequently sometimes he brings it out to the pool um but when he's been on the medal stand he's holding this blue bandana um, and the story behind it actually has a tie into the world of teaching. And so that blue bandana belonged to a teacher um, of math named Claire McCool and to Dressel, she was his, what he called quote life teacher. And unfortunately that she, is so special, right? It is special. And so he brings that with them. Um, there's more to the story. Apparently, Somewhere in like 2013, 14, when um, he was, you know, a top ranked swim recruit, he mm-hmm. took a leave from the sport. And um, it was this teacher that kind of helped him through this mental break and working through what he describes as some demons that he was fighting at this point. He confided mm-hmm. in this teacher. We have no idea like how she helped him through it. That's never really been revealed. But we, whatever she did. But it she was, was his confidant. Exactly. It was crucial to him. And um, unfortunately, she ended up coming down with. Uh, being diagnosed with breast cancer in 2015, and a couple of years later, she passed away. Um, her husband uh, had four bandanas that she would like work out with, and apparently, he gave one to each of the kids and to Caleb. And so um. he now brings this bandana and it's been for years. He's been doing this since like 2017, 18. He's been kind of bringing it to all the world championships and stuff like that. But mm-hmm. even to this day here in 2021 at the Olympics, he still has that bandana. So if you see him or, or go back and look at him on the um, podium as he receives that gold medal, you'll see uh, that bandana. And that's what it's all about. It's- it's like he's keeping that torch lit for her. And that's such an inspirational story, not just for young people, 
for teachers. We often talk about how teachers aren't, you know, it's not a teaching is not a respected profession. Um, they're not paid as well as they should be paid. They spend their money on their, you know, classroom uh, supplies or spending money on all of their students. But this this story equates, or I should say it connects to every single one of us who are passionate and committed to teaching and serving children. Right. Like this is the story. This is what happens when you run into children later and they become young adults or they're well into adulthood and you see them, you run into them and they tell you how you've made a difference. And that is just so inspiring that I, I'm actually going to have to share this story as I start my uh, CNI Roadshow this week across the district. Yeah, you should. And I'm going to use that story to make a connection and to help them remember why we persevered through a pandemic that now is in a fourth wave, why we continue to give children 150% because it's what they deserve and why we need to be thinking about 2035 and those children who are going to be, you know, running the world. I mean, we ask all of our guests on this show um, the same seven questions in our pop quiz segment. Um, one of those questions is what's the best gift you can give an educator? And, and to me, I guess, I mean, everyone has their own answer, but often that answer is a thank you, um, you know, mm -hmm. or, or just find True going back to a teacher and saying, Hey, you affected my life this way. And, and look at me now. Like, I think that's, that's the ultimate gift, right? It is. And you'll laugh. I was um, shopping about a week ago and I ran into while well, I was shopping with um, some former colleagues, should I say, I went to a former colleague's boutique mm -hmm. and there were several teachers there and we all taught together many years ago. And one of the teachers, I actually taught her daughter. She's in a probably 28, 29 years old. She lives in Belgium. Um, and she, I can't tell you what her title is, but um, I will tell you what her mother said to me. And it, it just really touched me. She said, oh, we have to call her. She said she hadn't learned a thing since your class. And I looked at her and I said, what do you mean? She said she has always told everyone she meets that you made the greatest impact on her, not just with deep knowledge, but just the fact that, you know, she could be anything she wanted to be. And she's some big time um, computer exec. I, I you know, can't break it down, but she she FaceTimed her. And when she saw my face, it almost brought me to tears how ecstatic she was and how excited she was. And she introduced me to her fiance. This is my seventh grade science teacher. <laughs> and I said, I've known her since she was 12 years old. And it was the best moment in the world. And right? it just That's awesome. reminded me why I do what I do. So I I'm going to, I'm going to share this story. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And, and your story is actually just as touching. So that, it really is important. It's, it's why I think educators do what they do. And so it's so important, even for educators to go back to maybe the educator that changed their life and say, you know, you changed my life and here's how. Um, it just really makes a person's day, I, I would think. Yes. Good stuff. Well, we have to talk about what's taking place um, locally uh, for us. I know we try to often look <laughs> at national news, but we um, started school early here in Lamar County, uh, Mississippi, um, where both of our kids or our two of my kids and one of your children go to school. And um, we've been in school for a week think right it was exactly seven days yeah so yeah we had like a little half day thing or, or no we had a full day mm -hmm. but it was like half half the kids and then we did like a full week after well you that. had one full week right. and do you want to say what happened uh, well i'll tell you how it happened from my household okay. so uh, by thursday 
I, I get a call from my son telling me that there are a couple of positive kids on the team and now they're doing mass testing at school. And I said, what? He said, yes, mom. And it's terrible because we might not be able to have school. They said we're going virtual. And I said, calm down, baby. It's not going to be that bad. By the time I was off work, <laughs> it was all over social media uh-huh. and two of our local high schools immediately shut down at the end of the week. And they are going virtual for two weeks in hopes of, you know, preventing um, a great spread within our area. But it's just it's unbelievable because everyone was so excited to return. Mm -hmm. And this our local school district adopted a year round schedule where they started earlier in July. And they would have the two week intercessions in the middle. So everyone was very hopeful. And so now you hear, you know, well, maybe we shouldn't have started yet. My opinion is it doesn't matter if it was July, if it's when we're starting on the 5th next week, if the the 16th when they return, it's about how this Delta variant is spreading and the impact that it's having on our kids. Yeah, I mean, I think I saw when it comes to the Delta variant, um, it was NPR reported that apparently the original strand it was like for every one person that got it up to as many as three or or it was it was likely that one to three other people would get it who were around that person well with the delta variant it's up to like i think six to nine people for every one person that gets it it just shows you how much more contagious it is the other thing i I would point out um which i have to agree with um is lamar county has a very aggressive testing strategy in place this year more aggressive than last year well but that has been put to a stop. Oh, has it really? One of the things, yes. One of the things I said to my son was, well, you should not be tested because I did not sign that approval form. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you have to remember that they are minors and you have to give parental consent. Right. Well, he didn't have to be tested because he's vaccinated. vaccinated right. But the next day we did receive a note from the principal saying that they are going to back away from um, school testing and just follow the Mississippi Department of Health's new recommendations, which are aligned to CDC. So when our right. students report back to school, they should be required to wear masks um, within the building. And um, I'm just hoping that, you know, that is able to come together in that fashion. Um, I do think that it was pretty awesome if they had the means, the the human capital to be able to test. But one thing I want people to think about when they complained about, well, why did they have to shut down? It was only such and such number of people that tested positive. It's not just about the positive numbers. It's when you do your contact tracing, how many students and or staff members that could involve. And when our school had to shut down and go virtual for two weeks last December, if you remember we only had three positives in the building. Mm-hmm. The problem was there were over 300 a part of the contact tracing. Well, you might as well shut it down. That's half the student body. Yeah, I, I want to say the local paper said um, Oak Grove High School, it which was is almost near 50. Us. Yeah, it was close to 50. It was like 48 or 50. Um, the actual like students that tested positive. Um, I know my son apparently was um, in close contact with one of those, um, mm-hmm. but he was vaccinated. So he simply showed his proof of vaccination. Right. They said, you can continue to come to school here. But I do wonder if that at least aggressive testing strategy out the gate wasn't part of the reason they knew that they had 48 students. I wonder if like well, last year, if they had 48 and ignorance was bliss, they just weren't testing as often. And these I don't kids think that that's what it is. I mean, yeah. you have to think about the beginning of the year activities. Let's talk about senior day. That probably mm-hmm. helped contribute to that situation. But I will say that I was notified on Thursday that, you know, that they were testing and there were some positives on the team. And then again, that next morning I was sitting in a meeting and I got another text message that there was some positives in my son's first period class. So I think it just started tumbling. And by midday, they knew the mm-hmm. best 
best thing to do is to go virtual, give everybody an opportunity to stay home. You know, if it's spread it across the student body, here's an opportunity to, you know, keep everybody at home. And when they return to school and wear a mask, I mean, this is just realistically speaking, they now have at least 90 days of, you know, antibodies. Yeah. I mean, let's hope that this doesn't happen everywhere. It's like, we're again, I feel like, you know, we started school more aggressively last school year than much of the country. And here Absolutely. we are. Just coincidentally with our new schedule, we started earlier in the summer mm-hmm. and it was a rough start. I- I'll just say that. Yeah, I mean, so was. here we are. There are two weeks virtual now. Um, and it's not every high school, but it's like you said, two in the county that they decided to do that. And then they well, immediately put the mass policy back in place for yeah. my little girl's school, um, which is still open. So, um, Well, but I will tell you, a lot of other districts are learning from this situation. And if they did not have mass mandates and their return to school plans, they're putting putting them there now. And also a lot of districts were considering this same year round schedule that this district adopted. And so they're learning from that as well. It's just unfortunate that their district had to be, you know, in the spotlight with Mm -hmm. such tough decision-making, but they moved swiftly. I'll give them that credit. They did very swiftly. Um, I'm going to switch gears a little bit here and we're going to try to, figure out if this is a thing just by looking at small samples. But NPR posted a story. It says kindergarten enrollment fell last year. Now schools wonder how many kids are coming. And of course, again, here we are back in school again, and we may have a little bit of a a micro uh, look at whether or not we're seeing uh, jumps in enrollment due to, I guess, just people coming back into the the public school system. And and what they were pointing to was public school enrollment dipped across the board. Preliminary, it did. Preliminary federal data shows um, that the youngest grades saw the largest changes. Kindergarten enrollment fell 9% and pre-K mm-hmm. enrollment fell 22%. Now, what my little microcosm world that I live in, I know that Carline is exponentially longer to get through. And then they end up sending out a mass text message saying they have a hundred new cars at the elementary mm-hmm. school in the car line, which tells me, you know, and that's a K through uh, five school, I believe. And that just tells me that, all right, well, maybe they had an influx of enrollment and it might be pre-K and kindergarten. Possibly, but you also have a number of parents that are saying, well, we're not going to use the bus because that is like uh, a little, you know, rolling too. Petri dish. Yep. Good point too. Now, are you seeing a jump? I don't know if you, with your new position in the district office, you're looking at the same data, but do you know if you guys are seeing enrollment up this year? um, We don't start school until next Thursday. And typically in our area, parents are a little slower with registration period. This is historical. Uh Um, So we'll have to take a look at that after a few days of school starting. But I will say from my position that I have been analyzing and making um, quite a few placements for homeschool children returning back to public education. Okay, gotcha. Okay, so so that that data comes to me, and I have to make decisions based on the data um, as to what grade to place them in. And so um, we've been seeing quite a bit of those. And of course, some of that homeschooling is um, tied to COVID, but there are a number that um, were homeschooled even before last year, right? That right. have been re- returning to our district, and so we're happy about that. We want to be able to teach children face to face and get them in the buildings and give them a great experience, you know, amid all of these different things going on in our world. I mean, is if all these schools across the country saw this huge jump, and let's just say like all the the K through six schools and stuff saw a huge jump in enrollment, I mean, is that uh, a headache or can schools quickly adapt usually to seeing jumps? Um, it's probably both a headache as in trying to balance trying to balance classroom sizes based on the number of teacher units you were given. But at the same time, I mean, it's great because the more student body, the, the, the greater your school can be, it can impact your, um, 
you know, your ranking of, of whether we're, what class you fall into. And also remember that your funding is based on um, per pupil. Right. No doubt. All right, Christina. Well, um, are you ready for today's Bright Idea? I am. Our guest in today's Bright Idea segment is a school designer that focuses on building schools tailored to the way children learn. Prakash Nair is the founding president and CEO of Education Design International, and he's the author of several books like Blueprint for Tomorrow, Redesigning Schools for Student-Centered Learning, and his latest book, Learning by Design, Live, Play, Engage, Create. Prakash, welcome to Class Dismissed. Uh, Thanks, Nick. It's a pleasure to be here. I want to dive into your books, Blueprint for Tomorrow and Learning by Design in in a minute. But first, I have to pick your brain on how the COVID crisis has impacted your thinking when it comes to designing schools. Yes, uh, the, the process of change in school design has actually been going on now for a number of years, but it has mostly been a sort of a fringe movement. And I think COVID 19 is going to accelerate uh, that process. What does that look like? I guess in my mind, if I'm thinking of trying to design a school that is safer for the world that we're currently living in, I start thinking about bottlenecks and tight hallways. That might be an issue. I start thinking about ventilation systems. Is that stuff that's crossed your mind? Yeah, but it's it's interesting. It's kind of what everybody thinks, right? I mean, they think about schools and they think about how to make it safer. So essentially, you're taking a model of education that's been obsolete for probably over 100 years, <laughs> because even 100 years ago, people were saying that it's inhumane to trap a bunch of kids in a room and then keep them there so they can listen to an adult. I mean, children go to school to watch adults work. I mean, that's a good way of putting schools. Mm-hmm. So yes, when we talk about COVID, we are talking about how to make that basically dysfunctional model uh, a little... Uh, less dysfunctional, but in the process, it becomes more dysfunctional, right? I mean, if you have children who are in a classroom and now you have fewer of them and they are socially distanced, so they can't even literally touch each other, that's an even more dysfunctional um, version of what we already have. So I would say that we should put that aside and say, how can we use this opportunity to change the fundamental model of schooling, which has been broken now for a long, long, long time? So if I'm hearing you right, you're saying a lot of the things that might make a safer school is stuff we should have already been thinking about in terms of designing schools in the first place. Yes. uh, What I'm basically saying is that if we design schools the way they needed to be designed in the beginning, the chances are they would be it would be easier to deal with the COVID crisis because you would have children with a little bit more elbow room um, and ability to move around you would have a model called learning communities where students are not trapped in classrooms, but instead have a variety of different spaces. So the same number of students would now have uh, more room. But beyond that, learning communities also connect very uh, strongly with outdoors. And that becomes a huge uh, additional uh, amount of space that you would have had. So that's how um, COVID would have been much less of an impact on a well-designed school is my point. It has a much greater impact on a factory school, which was basically a leftover from the Industrial Revolution. Okay, so yeah, you just said something that caught my attention. You said a factory school. So so you're you're saying that schools are basically mirrored along the lines of a factory, right? Yeah, because if you think about if you think about the idea of uh, sorting kids by age, not based upon aptitude, interest, or passion, but rather simply by age, and then stick them in a room with an adult, 
you can't personalize, obviously. How does one teacher personalize learning for 25 students? And now we know that children are not parts in a factory. Every child constructs knowledge based on his or her own uh, background. And so when we talk about personalization, that's just rhetoric. You, it's physically impossible to personalize learning. The second problem is that teachers can't work as a team, and teachers are one of the few professions that are always isolated from their from their peers. So there's a bunch of reasons why the factory model school doesn't work because children are not like parts in a factory. You can't churn out uh, identical widgets, you know, and you don't want to. Why would you want all 25 students to turn out, turn out exactly the same? So why are you subjecting them to the exact same process? I want our listeners to hear some of your solutions to that in a second. But first, let's kind of fill them in on your background a little bit. You used to work for, is it New York City schools for a while? Yeah, I was the director of operations for the largest school construction program in the world. We were spending an average of a billion dollars every year during my my 10 years that I was in that position from 1989 to 1999. Yeah, and that's billion with a B. With a B, right. Right. So that's incredible. And so I guess when you reflect on that, and you have since, I guess, gone off and started your own consulting company in terms of school design, I mean, w- what do you think about that time? Well, I think we made... Uh, we did the same thing that many other schools and school districts are doing. And I would say 95% of uh, public school districts, even to this day, are doing the same thing, which is we built schools that were obsolete on the day they opened. So the problem with schools uh, buildings is that unlike everything else, you're basically then uh, telling students uh, that for the next 50 years, they're going to be studying in dysfunctional spaces. That was, again, outdated on the day the school opened. So, I mean, of course, I didn't realize that when we were building those schools. But when I realized it, that was when I I decided that I have to move on and leave that job behind. Right. So you started your own company and you since have been working, I guess, with districts, not just all over the United States, but all over the world, right? Yeah. So obviously, when I started, I wasn't sure that there would even be a market for what I was uh, basically selling, if you want to call it that. It was mostly ideas to say we can do better that school buildings don't need to reflect uh, uh, our looking in the rearview mirror, but we should be looking forward. I mean, schools, if anything, have to be the most futuristic things, right? Because we are preparing children for an unknown future. So I was thinking, what would happen if you design school buildings based on the actual research about how children learn? And I thought there would be a market for it. And sure enough, there was. So over the last 20 years, um, I've now the companies that I've started have worked uh, have done work in in fifty two countries around the world. That's that's incredible. Kudos to you and all that work. Now, blueprint for tomorrow, I guess, is is not just saying you know we need to build new schools to tailor how the way childrens learn, but it's also basically saying how do we renovate the existing buildings we have, right? That's right. Because if you think in terms of just building new buildings, like ninety nine. Point nine percent of the children in the school already have a place to go to. So if we're talking about new schools, it's for the children who currently don't have a place in school, which is basically new students maybe coming in in areas that are being uh, where enrollment is increasing. So if I were to come up with solutions that applied only to a brand new school, that would basically eliminate ninety nine percent of all all <laughs> children and two trillion dollars worth of investment that we made in our school buildings. So. I have been working on solutions to take existing schools and convert them at uh, very reasonable prices, uh, very often with work that you can do over a summer, 
to make them truly uh, modern. I don't want to say 21st century because it's that's, you know, uh, <laughs> it's such a cliche because we're well into the 21st century. I mean, it's an absurd to say that we should. But the reality is that these schools are stuck actually in the 20th and one, might be once the 19th century. Okay, so here's the the billion dollar question: is is what does that look like? What do you go in and, and tell people to change in an existing school building? Yeah, well, fundamentally, we have a model that we call cells and bells, which is that kids start their day in a in a cell. The bell goes off, and then they move to another identical cell. And my uh, point is that there is only a limited number of things that you can physically do when you're trapped in a classroom. Now, if you think about wanting children to learn anything, or adults to learn anything. If you want to be a football player, you have to go play football. If you want to be a pianist, you have to play uh, the piano. If you want to be a chef, you have to be in the kitchen. Schools are uh, um, never doing that. Schools are all about theory and giving, um, filling information in kids' heads so they can spit it out on an exam. They almost never get to try it out in a real world uh, scenario. So my point is that the spaces should allow for multiple uh, ways of learning. We call them uh, modalities of learning. So a classroom typically would be good for two or three modalities of learning, whereas I want them to be uh, living in spaces that allow up to 19 or 20 modalities of learning. So that means the lessons can be much richer and the spaces are there to accommodate a much uh, richer lesson plan so that students are actually doing, applying what they're learning as opposed to just learning it so they can spit it out on an exam. Can you get um, even more specific? I mean, when you say a, a richer space, I mean, what does that look like? What do you change? It's it's basically very simple. Like as human beings, there are I'll, I'll, I'll narrow it down to four modalities instead of the twenty. Right? Let's we the four would be uh, we call it campfire. So learning happens in four ways. Campfire is when you hear a professional talking to you and you get inspired. Say you listen to a TED talk or something, and then you say, "Wow, that's great!" So you've learned something, right? The next form is called uh, watering hole. Watering hole is when you take that information that you got to the campfire and you share it with a colleague. You talk it up. And when you discuss it with somebody else, your peer, maybe new new insights come into play that you never uh, would have imagined had you just listened to that uh, lecture or a podcast. And the third way of uh, learning would be cave, which is that you have to internalize. I mean, there's so much stuff that's hitting you from all corners of the world that you really need to get away from everything and you need to synthesize what you're learning. You need to internalize it and you need to see how it makes meaning in your own personal life. And finally, you got to try it out. So that's life, right? So it's campfire, cave, uh, watering hole and life. So the spaces have to be designed so that all four modalities of learning are actually happening. So if I were a fly on the wall looking at a well-designed school building, I would see all four of these modalities happening. Preferably the campfire in very, very, very small quantities because listening to somebody tell you something is actually the least effective way for you to learn. I mean, you might imagine that you're learning something. It's kind of like the difference between actually physically playing a piano versus versus going and listening to a concert pianist. You may come away inspired by the concert pianist, but you haven't actually learned anything until you actually put your hand on that piano. So what does a, a cave space look like, for example, in a school building? It could be a windowsill. It could, in, when you're a very small child, it could be a space under, um, a, you know, a loft, a reading loft. Um, there are dozens of ways in which we can create safe uh, cave spaces where children can basically get away 
but are still being visually supervised by adults. The idea is to be by yourself in your own head. That's what a cave space is all about. Right. And so where where have you seen these ideas? Like, where have you been able to actually implement these ideas? Is there a school that you can kind of point to, preferably in the United States, where you say, man, that that's what we were going for? Yeah, we've, we've done a number of them, obviously, all around the world. But in the U.S., uh, one of the early ones we did was the P.K. Young um, uh, research, uh, Developmental Research School that's in uh, Gainesville. It's, it's part of the University of Florida. And actually, the school was set up so that it could become a, a sort of a teaching school for others to follow. So there we implemented all of these things that I'm talking to you about, where they're basically even broken down the idea of grades. I mean, there are two grades always working together. Uh, teachers are always working in a team. They don't have the traditional classrooms that we would recognize as a classroom. They have a variety of spaces, and they're all based on the learning community model. And teachers uh, have their own collaborative office where they work out of. Let's talk about your your book, Learning by Design, which is more recently released, and, and that is um, all about building a space that's proper for student learning. Yeah, Learning by Design has a couple of um, uh, ideas behind it. First, it was written with my uh, co-authors, uh, Roni Zimmer-Doctori, who is uh, my uh, architect colleague, uh, and Dr. Richard Elmore, who is the professor emeritus at Harvard. And the idea is that the word uh, design, by design, uh, implies two things. One is by intent. Uh, design is our intent. And design is also what architects do uh, in the designing of spaces. But the subtitle here is live, play, engage, and create. So by that, what I mean is that uh, when you live, when you play, when you engage in things that are exciting for you, and when you're creating things that are original, you're also learning. So the problem with most schools, most classroom-based schools, is that they don't allow you to really live, play, engage, or create. Therefore, they are shortchanging the learning process because real learning happens as a byproduct. So when you try to hammer learning as a pure uh, thing, it's actually counterproductive and counterintuitive because that's not how researchers and neurologists say our brain works. We have to actually engage in something, create something, play or be living, and then learning just happens sort of naturally. So our reason for writing the book was to say that if you want to design a school, and I'm saying design, including the curriculum and all of the other pieces, you have to design it so that students are having amazing experiences in school. And in those experiences, learning is uh, already embedded. And so, of course, spaces have to reflect uh, these uh, amazing experiences that we want to give our children. Yeah, and the cover on on Learning by Design is actually pretty stunning. Is that an actual classroom that, that you all have designed? I mean, it, it looks like it's just like this great breakdown of a, of a workspace. Yeah, this is actually, believe it or not, the classroom type space is behind. And as you can see, there's some wooden doors, which are uh, glass doors that are actually completely open. And there's a teacher who might normally have been teaching in that classroom who is now serving more as a guide. And he happens to be sitting with a bunch of kids who might have, need his advice. But at the same time, other students are doing their own thing. So this is actually a breakout space that is immediately outside what we call the learning studio. And the learning studio is just a, a much more sophisticated version of a classroom because it can do a lot more than you can do in a classroom. And and we, in other words, we are saying we're not saying direct instruction is bad. We are not saying you want to go back to the 1970s with the open classrooms 
where there were no no rooms. We're saying there need to be rooms for direct instruction, but they need to be that needs to be done in a very uh, careful way so that you're only giving enough instruction uh, uh, so that students can go off and discover things on their own and not sort of spoon feed them the information they need. You mentioned the school in Gainesville and having um, put that one together and being proud of that. I mean, have you had a chance to to go back? I mean, do you actually like see the school in action since y'all have designed it? Yeah. By the way, the cover of uh, Blueprint for Tomorrow is that school in Gainesville. Okay. And there was a course that um, I did with Professor Richard Elmore called Leaders of Learning. It's a it's an edX course in which uh, the teachers at that school have been interviewed as well. Uh, so. Yes, I've gone back a number of times, and uh, the the format for the school has um, evolved over time. But the fundamental model, which is that learning cannot be mass-produced, that it has to be a personalized model, uh, has not changed. And so you will still see that very much in evidence. I know you're talking a lot about, you know, renovating existing buildings. And, and as you said, that's 99% of, of what's out there. But I've, I've seen recently, too, I mean, in this COVID crisis is probably going to cause us to be even more so. I've seen a lot of real estate go vacant. And for example, I think it was in Alabama, I saw a, um, a shopping mall that they actually converted into a high school because no one wanted the space. And it just made sense to use an existing space like that. Is that anything that's kind of crossed your desk? Oh, absolutely. There was a community we worked with in Virginia that uh, essentially wanted to build a high school. But in conversations with the community, we realized that actually the better alternative may be to create a series of small hubs where students are getting some specialized uh, experience. You know, it could be a Starbucks kind of a, a hub. It might be robotics. It might be forensics. It might be medical technology, you know, and on and on. And so you don't need to have a full-fledged high school because the community already had three high schools. So if you want to uh, go and play football or swim, you can go to one of the high schools. But the rest of the time, you can be in one of these hubs. So what we're saying is that the whole concept of how we think about schools uh, should change. And you're 100% right that any place it can potentially be a, a school uh, and I want people not to use the word school and immediately get to the mental model of what a school looks like. We're talking about places for learning. So, yes, you can do it in a, a shopping mall. You can do it in a strip center mall, a movie theater. I mean, you name it. There's no building type out there that won't be in some way useful and can be repurposed, if you will, for for learning. And with your book, Learning by Design, I mean, is your target there educators or is it more the decision makers and the people that are trying to, to redo the schools? Well, basically, it's everybody. And the reason is that what we are saying is is simple, right? I mean, if you were stuck with a 1982 Apple IIe, we wouldn't be able to have this conversation, right? And so the, the point is that the hardware matters in order to run the software that we want. And we are now dealing with a 100-year-old uh, hardware. So my point is that when we think about architecture, you can't put it in the realm of architects and say, okay, you guys... That's your that's your area. No, basically the form and function are completely integrated in the way in an iPad is a different form factor that allows you to do things you can't do on your iPhone or your MacBook, right? So I want everybody to understand that you can't leave this uh, in somebody else's hands. Everybody who is a part of education needs to educate themselves about the profound impact the hardware has on everything that they want to do as educators. So this is um, a message, and the book has been written in such a way that 
everybody, even a layperson, a parent, a superintendent, a teacher, everybody can benefit and basically take the learning environment and make that part of their um, arsenal, their repertoire of things that they need to know in order to be a good teacher, a good superintendent, a good principal, a good parent. And even this applies even in your own home, how you how you set up your home so kids can learn better. You know, uh, I've got to ask you, since you you guys are an international company, and I think you mentioned you've been in, done work in 52 different countries. Right. Um, so is there a country that is, you know, across the board uh, adopting this line of thinking and doing it right everywhere? Or is it just a matter of pockets of people trying to slowly convert to this, um, you know, learning by design? It's interesting because a country like Finland, for example, has succeeded because they marginalized the school and made it a smaller part of the equation. So it's not because Finland schools look that much better or physically better, but because the school is a smaller part of the overall learning equation, they're successful because they know that learning doesn't begin and end with the physical school. It's, it's a community effort. Uh, so yeah, places like Australia, New Zealand, um, as I said, parts of Scandinavia, Denmark, uh, they have tried to do a lot of this. And in the United States, we have dozens of great examples as well. But you're 100% right that it's not really immersed in, at a national level to the extent that I would like to see it. You know, because we have this model that is so pervasive. I mean, I've been in schools and I wouldn't even know which country I'm in because they look exactly identical, hmm. you know. So you'd have to look at the posters on the wall to know that, you know, you're maybe in Abu Dhabi as opposed to, you know, Switzerland, you know. That's how uh, uniform schools are across the world. So this is a very hard um, nut to crack. I mean, when a, when a billion more kids are in schools that look the same, it, it, it there's a comfort that this is what it should be, you know. And, and uh, so we're trying to break that, let people know, no, just because more people are doing it doesn't make it right. It's a broken model. Well, uh, it's very fascinating. And, and uh, good luck to you in, in cracking that nut because I, I think this is so important. And I mean, just, you know, looking at your books and the work that you've done, it seems like, um, you know, we should be seeing results uh, with this new type of learning. So, Prakash, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Nick. I appreciate it and appreciate all the great work you're doing. Hey, before you run, are you ready for our uh, pop quiz? Sure, absolutely. All right. First question. If students could only go to school for one subject, which subject should it be? Art. What are we not teaching in school that we should be teaching? Psychology. What does every child deserve? To be loved. What's the biggest challenge for today's educators? Giving up control. What's the best gift to give an educator? Freedom. Which teacher changed your life? I would say, yes, uh, when I said teacher, um, yes, uh, Professor Richard Elmore, uh, even though he, he wasn't teaching me in school, but he continues to teach me to this day. So. And, and how, did, how did that change your life? He changed uh, the way I think about education and the way uh, I think about the world, about people. And, and I'm curious for this last question, since you are a designer, pen or pencil? Pencil. All right. Again, Prakash, uh, we appreciate you taking the time to chat with us. And uh, the new book is Learning by Design, if you want to check it out. Uh, where's the best place to find that? Uh, it's available everywhere on Amazon. Um, and it's available as a Kindle book. It's also available around the world because Amazon is uh, printing it in many different parts of the world. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us on Class Dismissed. Thanks, Nick. Take care. Bye-bye.
That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. If you want to send us an idea or comment, remember you can always email us at info at classdismissedpodcast.com or tweet us at classdismiss. We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So please subscribe to the show. And we'd also appreciate it if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes. On behalf of all the good people working at School Status and Christina, representing all those educators out there, thank you for listening. I'm Nick Ortigo, and I'll talk with you next week. Class dismissed.